0: And you can t- take a look in your program for uh, uh, an explanation of, of um, the focus today for prayer. I'm going to ask Judy now to come and read scripture. This morning I'm reading from the second book of the Apostle Luke. And spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Amen.
1: Every television episode begins the same way previously on, and then the title of the show you're watching, and then you begin to watch about a 30-second montage of clips from the the previous week's episode, and sometimes they need to go back a few episodes, maybe even the previous season, to remind you of what's going on and and what the different plot plot lines are going on there. Well, I need to do a little of the same thing this morning, so a 30-second review of where we've been so far this month. A couple of weeks ago, Graham introduced us to the series of place by talking about the promised land, that God spoke to, to Abraham and said, you need to leave your father's land and your family. You need to set off for this place I'm going to show you. And it was the beginning of this revelation that the place mattered to God and his people. And so they headed off on this journey toward the promised land. And once they got there, God began to call them to something else, the task of building a temple. And so the people built this magnificent temple for them. And, and there was a place within that temple, this holy place where God's presence would come and would dwell. And, and the people began to see that this is where God's presence was. But then as that temple was destroyed and then rebuilt again... Jesus' disciples drew his attention to it and said, Look at this magnificent place. And Jesus dismissed it. He said, Well, it's going to be torn down, and, and I'll raise it up again in three days from now. And, and he kind of dismissed the significance of this temple. And what we talked about last week was how the reason that he did that is that his body has become this new temple, that, that his body was destroyed and raised again, and that that was the temple now, the place where, where God's Spirit was. And we talked about how how Paul took this understanding and, and taught the New Testament church about the significance of what that means for them. In 1 Corinthians three sixteen, he asked this kind of rhetorical question to the Corinthians don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Now Paul tells us that God's presence, it's not in a tent, it's not in a tabernacle, it's not in a most holy place behind a curtain in a temple, but it's right smack dab in the midst of God's people. Well, in this morning's reading, we find ourselves looking on as Jesus' closest followers catch the first glimpse of what it looks like for God's Spirit to be dwelling in their midst. Now the book of Acts continues some previous writing done for a man named Theophilus, You recognize that name, and you probably thought, like, well, who is that? What does that have to do with anything? Well, in the ancient, uh, in in those years, basically, sometimes if someone wanted to have their writing kind of distributed, they would need to find someone who had the wealth or the means to be able to to copy their work and distribute them. And so Theophilus was that person, and basically Luke said, okay, I'll do this for you, and you can help spread this this world, this account of Jesus' life around. So in case you thought the Bible was ad-free, it isn't. I would like to suggest that Theophilus has made the most important advertising decision ever. Here we are 2,000 years from now, and we're still hearing his name read, right? Got his name in the Bible for sponsoring Luke's writing. Well, Luke begins this version, the second volume, with a similar kind of previously on. He starts off, and he says, all right, Theophilus, so you remember what I was talking about the first time around. All that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. Which is kind of a strange thing to say. All that he began to do. But isn't Jesus' role in this story finished? I mean, that's how volume one ended. Volume one ended with the d- disciples, you know, celebrating. They're filled with joy. They're praising God. But Jesus had just disappeared from their midst. He had, like, ascended into heaven. But just before he left, he said this, "'I am going to send what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high.'" That's how he ends his first volume. So if you're reading the Gospel of Luke, that's how it ends. And who knows how long it was before he eventually got around to writing volume two, and that got circulated around. But there's this kind of cliffhanger ending. Well, Melissa and I and Owen have started watching this new show recently called The Crossing. It's about these people who wash up on a beach, and apparently they're from the future. Anyways, we're like three episodes in, and then I heard from my sister-in-law last week that they've canceled the next season. It's over after this season. I'm like, well what? Like, it's over? I'm never going to find out what's going to happen. There's no possible way that they can wrap it up this quickly. But the book of Acts was likely written in the 60s, so like 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So Theophilus was well aware that the series known as Christianity was already well into its second season. So Luke's writing was a little behind. So 30 years after the fact, Christianity was growing and spreading, but the story needed to be told. And so Luke begins in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 to 5. Let me just reread a couple of those verses. He talks about Jesus' instructions on one occasion while he was eating with them. He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Last Sunday, after our service, we celebrated water baptism with a couple of members of our community. And if you kind of caught on to some of the symbolism that I was explaining out in the courtyard there, there's this idea of being immersed in water that that as a person goes under the water, an old way of life goes under the grave, and that as they are brought up from the water, a new life begins. And so we have this kind of imagery of baptism, of of submersion, and of and of new life. And then all of a sudden Jesus is using this language and imagery of baptism, but he's talking about a baptism in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, he went on to say you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. At Jesus' own baptism, God the Father spoke these words of affirmation. And we reminded ourselves last week about how the words of, that God spoke over Jesus at his baptism, they echo in our own baptism, that we are accepted and embraced and affirmed by the Father. But then this, this spirit baptism is something different. The words that, and the language around this are a language of power. These two repeated words at the end of Luke's gospel, at the beginning of Acts, are promise and power, bridging the gap between what Jesus began and what he would continue to do through the Holy Spirit. I want to show you a picture up on the screen, see if you can see what this is a picture of. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. I can't see anything. This is a terrible shot. But the reason it's hard to see is because I took this uh, in the midst of that crazy windstorm two weeks ago in Zares. I was shopping for groceries, and I was at the back of the store, and all of a sudden, the power cuts. And then the, the reserve power kind of started coming up, and then it died. And it's pitch black. And I'm at the back of the grocery store saying, like, this is cool, right? And you're expecting it to come on, so everyone's just kind of standing there, and it didn't come on, and the power didn't come back on. And then all of a sudden, you see these little lights. Everyone's taking their phone out, and they're using their little flashlights, and they're going along the shelf, and they're, like, picking their things. They just continue shopping. I'm like, oh, I can do the same thing. So I'm, like, doing my shopping pitch black. You can barely see anyone in the store. It was awesome. Eventually, this guy kind of comes up to me. He's like this, and he's like, he's like y- you need to leave. Like, you need to go out of the store now. The, the checkouts have some reserve power. It was this crazy windstorm. And if you can remember, just again, just two weeks ago, think about the sound if you were driving or, or in your house, the sound of the wind beating up against the side of your house. So just keep that sound in mind because Acts chapter 2 begins with the same kind of imagery. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So here we have the followers of Jesus. They're gathered in this house, and they hear this wild sound like the wind we heard two weeks ago, but it's filling the room. It's not outside, beaten against the walls. It's filling the room they're in. Now, I've read this verse a hundred times, but I've never really noticed the word sitting. It filled the house where they were sitting, and I was thinking, well, maybe that's a sign that they weren't exactly waiting with bated breath. Did someone ever make a promise to you and not fulfill it? or maybe take a really long time to fulfill the promise. Last week, uh, Jude's cousin showed up at the door, and he, he gave him an, an old skateboard he found around the house, and he also gave him $5. Because, like, two years ago, he made a bet and, and that Jude couldn't do something, and Jude did it. I think it was something to do with a volleyball game. And then he said, okay, I owe you 5 bucks." Well, for the last two years, every time Jude sees him, he's like, where's my $5? But he's never brought it to him. So two weeks ago, he brought over this $5. Finally, here, I'm coming through on my promise. Well there's maybe a little bit of that sense because Jesus said stay wait and stay here. I'm going to send this gift my father has promised you. And so after Jesus disappears from their sight, they're gathering it. and I imagine the first day they're standing. That they're standing up there they're like, "Oh, here it comes. Something's coming." And maybe the second day they're standing. That's how I've always pictured it. But 10 days go by and they're sitting. They're just like on the floor. They're like, "Whatever. Like, is this seriously going to come?" So they're sitting in this house, and all of a sudden, this sound, like this blowing of this violent wind starts whipping around. Those 10 days must have felt like two years. But then suddenly, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, we showed some pictures earlier of our youth hanging out at uh, the camping weekend where they're at. So they're at a place called um, Brayside Camp. Uh, The camp itself, Pitch and Praise, is uh, sponsored by the Evangelical Missionary Church. Um, the place where they meet is actually a Pentecostal camp. This is a picture of it there. And the Pentecostal church is kind of where I, my faith kind of came to life in high school and some of my early experiences growing in faith. And so this would have been a place that our youth group would have made a trip to. And so I want to tell you a story this morning that I've never told our church before. So we got on a bus, and our youth group went down to this church, to this church camp, and uh, we're there. And I'm, again, relatively new to this world of Pentecostal worship and, and, and stuff. And so I, had, I was familiar with the experiences that other people were having, but I kind of felt like a little bit of an outsider. And so we were in this camp environment, and it's this big hall, and it kind of looks like a church, basically, and you know there's some incredible times of worship together. And, and then at the end of the service. A speaker is up there at the front, and he says, he, he begins to talk about this experience of, of being baptized in the Spirit, the same experience that these first century believers had, and he, he talks about this experience of speaking in tongues or other languages, and I knew that people did this. I attended a church where, where this happened to people, so I knew it happened, but I was like, well, it's never going to happen to me. So we're in the service, and this preacher gets up there, and he says at the end of the service, he says, I want to invite you to come to the front. And, and he's like, and as soon, I'm telling you that as soon as you get up to the front of this building, you will begin to speak in these other languages. And I'm just like, this guy has got to be kidding me. And he's like, as soon as you, he it might even happen on the way up the aisle. But I guarantee you that if you come up to the front of this place, you are going to experience this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So people began walking to the front, and I got up and walked too. I walked right out the back door. And I was like pacing around outside, and I was praying something, probably like, God, what the heck's the matter with these people? How did I get myself stuck with them? Like, it was, I was upset and annoyed, and I was like, who the heck does this guy think he is? And then this girl came up to me. You might know her. Her name's Melissa. She, uh, she's like, what's, this, what's your problem? I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but <laughs> I'm paraphrasing probably to, to help her. Anyway... She said, What's your problem? I'm just like, what do you mean? I'm like, this guy's a joke. Like he's in there saying that like as soon as I walk down an aisle, I'm gonna have this like ecstatic experience. Like, what a joke. And she says, like, well, I'll guarantee you, like, with an attitude like that, you're never gonna have an experience like this. And she kind of walked away in a huff. And I was like, all right. I said, I'll prove to you what a kook this guy is. I'm gonna walk in there, I'm gonna walk up to the front, and nothing's gonna happen to me. So I walked in the back of this room and I got down on my knees at the side of this little altar. And I was overwhelmed with the presence of the Spirit of God and began speaking in this language that I had certainly never known. And I didn't even really understand what was happening. I didn't have any concept of, of what was going on. I felt like I was like almost outside of my body, just like, what is happening to me? What is going on here? And that continued for the next several hours. Now I should have actually had Melissa up here telling the story because I was in this, this state of like intense prayer for several hours. Our youth pastor did not do his job, didn't do a head count when the bus left, so they left us there. Uh, So Melissa ended up, because again, I was just kneeling down there, praying for like a very, very long time, not aware of anything that was going on around me. She had to find some random stranger to give us a drive home to KW, and anyway, she told me all about it after the fact, but I was like lost in this place of prayer and of intimacy with God on the other side of an experience that I didn't even think was possible, Now, I have no idea what you're thinking right now. (laughs) This guy's crazy. It was confounding for the first crowds of Pentecost too, right? They're like, what is going on? These people are speaking with words that they don't know. There's no way they can know our language. What is happening here? I mean, heck, if we think, if we have a hard time, like, discerning between Laurel and Yanny, like, how on earth are we going to explain like this, people speaking in these other kinds of languages, like what is happening, and what is the point of this? And I realize that for some, this is just like, like man, you've been following Jesus a long time, or maybe you've like never, this is your first time in church, and you're like, what the heck have I walked into, which is kind of how I felt. There's a story in Acts chapter 19, so a little, a little later, a little while longer, and Paul, the same one who, who is writing to the church, he he goes up to this group of believers and he asks them a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I heard a story a speaker told a couple weeks ago at a conference I was at, and he said he bought a new truck. And he traded in his old truck, so maybe like a three-year-old truck or whatever, traded, got in the new one. And when the dealer was giving him the keys, he says, oh, he says, so this is, let me show you how you work the remote starter on your truck. And, And he was like, whatever. He says, you just take this button and you hold it three seconds and it starts the engine. He's like, that's awesome. And he takes the key and he's like, wait a second. He said, can you give me my old fob for a second? And he gives him his old truck keys and he looks and he's like, sure enough, the button is there. He had a remote starter on his truck for the last three years and he didn't even know it. Paul goes up to these disciples, he's like, do you have the Holy Spirit? They're like, what? I didn't even know there was such a thing. I didn't even know this. Paul placed his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So I was listening to a conversation on a podcast this week, and these people were were talking about this experience of tongues, and one of them had this really interesting comment to say, so I, I wrote it down. Her name's Hillary McBride. She writes that language is a construct. Language is created by mankind, and it limits our experience of our spirituality when we try to funnel experience through language. Tongues allows us to bypass the centers of our brain that restrict and funnel experience and allows us to use a heart language that accesses the most core version of ourselves to experience and commune directly with God. I think that's an interesting way of explaining it. And I wonder if the fact that the Holy Spirit would use language as a sign of this new baptism might be significant, as in, I'm going to use your words to accomplish this task of of being my witnesses to the ends of the earth, and so I want to do something with your words to demonstrate that I I can take your words and I can do something supernatural with them in order to burst my witness out to the ends of the earth, which is what this is all about. And so try to imagine what that would be like. What if the conversations you had with your coworkers, with your neighbors, with your family members changed? What if there was power there? What if it wasn't just your words speaking, but what if God was speaking through you? What if you felt like the words you were speaking weren't just your own, but they came from some deeper and truer place? What if in your praying, your words were drawn from a deeper well and the Spirit was helping you pray from a deeper part of you? What is all this? What is going on? Well, Peter, in one of the most remarkable communication moments in world history, this is a fisherman, not a theologian, not a trained orator. This happens, and all the crowds are gathering around saying, what's going on? And he stands up and on the spot provides an explanation for what's happening. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirits in those days, and they will prophesy. He said, this is for everyone. This is not just an experience for a few of us hanging out in an upper room here, but this is an experience for everyone, because in the last days, God is going to pour out his spirit on all of us. Well, I believe that every one of us can receive the same power. From the same Holy Spirit that we read about in Acts. And I also believe that if we have any hope in the world of living the lives we're created to live, then we've got to find a way to tap into the source of life itself and stop trying to do it in our own power. Now, will you have the same experience as me? Maybe, maybe not. That's up to God, it's not up to me. I'm not going to make any promises about what happens when you walk up this aisle today but are you willing to swallow your pride like my 16-year-old self and ask for what you do not have? That is a question I want to linger in your minds this morning. Now, the bizarre events in the upper room might have got people talking, but what was the reason that Jesus would pour out his spirit? What did he say? He said it so this message about me would go out to the ends of the earth. When the day of Pentecost came, Acts 2 begins, they were all together in one place. Now, place is the word of the month for us. And while I don't imagine the place, that house the apostles gathered, was significant, well, the city of Jerusalem was significant. It was a hive of activity. In Acts chapter 2, we kind of skipped over a few verses, but it goes on to list all the different nations that were represented, that were gathered in that crowd, 15 or more different nations represented. Now, down on through Israel's history, they had been a people set apart. A people with a unique relationship with God, a covenant promise, but things were changing. Now, I'm going to play an audio clip for a minute. It comes from Freakonomics Radio, and it's a, the episode where they're talking about trust, and they're talking about how relationships are just plain easier when people are like us. Take a listen. Okay, something's muted. Try this one again. Okay, let's stop that. That's terrible. Were to that. I, mean, uh, I, I, I promise you we stop. tested that before the service and everything was fine. Okay, so I'm going to interpret what they were talking about. Basically, they're talking about trust. And, they're, and the question is asked, okay, wait a second. Now, if... If trust is, is easier to find around people who are similar, then shouldn't we be striving to have societies that are all the same? And one person asked, like, what about, like, Scandinavian societies? Because they're fairly homogenous. Like, how do things work there? And the, the researchers are saying, oh, yeah, like, things are great there. Things run really smoothly there. In fact, because so many people in those nations, they're very similar. And so the high, level of trust is high. And they said, but what about, like, other countries? And then they flip to another guy, and he says, listen, I'm in the city of London right now. And he said, I'm telling you, this place is buzzing with activity. This place is filled. It's probably the most cosmopolitan city in the world, and people from every different nation gathered here. And there's something that's, that's creative and new and different here. And they go on to talk about, so what do, we, what do we strive for? Like, is there a possibility of having, like, a successful and thriving society with so much diversity or should we just be trying to strengthen ourselves by surrounding ourselves with people who are just like us? Well, the story of Acts 2 reveals a shift from like a Stockholm faith to a London faith, from a, a place where it was, people were all the same. They had the same story, the same ethnic background, the same great-grandparents, the same holy books, the same practices, and all of a sudden in Acts 2, all that changes, and now we got people from other countries, and we got people with different backgrounds and different stories coming into the mix And at the beginning of this amazing, inspired sermon that Peter preaches, he he addresses it to fellow Israelites, fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem. This is like monumental what he's doing here. He's not just talking to his own people anymore. He's talking to everyone. This is now a message for everyone. Daniel Costello writes that when the Spirit of God is witnessed as being poured out on all flesh, the Spirit breaks through the confinements and barriers that are safe in one sense, but potentially exclusive, diminishing, and detestable in another. Sounds like what Jesus did, didn't it, doesn't it? Because what Jesus began, the Holy Spirit continued to the church, breaking down barriers, inviting people in. At the end of his sermon, Peter wraps up with these words. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Hugh Halter writes that the call of community isn't about finding people just like us to the exclusion of others. Community in the biblical sense is clearly about unlike people finding Christ at the center of their inclusive life together. You see, the day of Pentecost might have started with a homogenous group of Jews all gathered together in one place, but the sun set that day on a diverse and expanding community that would spread out across the globe, changing the world forever with the good news of Jesus. And that's where we come in. The global blessing that God promised Abraham, which was embodied in the promised land, and then in the temple, and then in Jesus, is now embodied in you and I. The verse that we started off with this morning, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? And then Paul ups the ante a few chapters later. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? It's one thing for him to like, talk about the church. like the church is now the place where the spirit of God dwells, and that would be hard for these early believers to get their heads around. But then he says, "But actually, your body is a place where the spirit dwells. So now God's presence is not only not in a, in a temple or a, or, or a tent somewhere, but, but God's presence is in you." David Rubinstein is a private equity billionaire and philanthropist a few years ago, he purchased uh, the, a copy of the Magna Carta for $21.3 million. I read an article an interview with him. It says that rather than admire his trophies privately at home, he has displayed them all over the nation's capital. His Abraham Lincoln-signed Emancipation Proclamation resides in the Oval Office. While his copy of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and is also signed by Lincoln, is on view of the Smithsonian. This Magna Carta, this document from the 13th century, is kept in a $2 million state-of-the-art case... He made this observation. He says, I think when you see something like this, it enables the brain to think more. And I love that line. It's not like when you read it. It's not like when you read the words of the Emancipation Proclamation. It's when you see it, this physical artifact. You're like, you're encountering something significant that has happened in our history. And I think that's what happens when the Spirit of God dwells in each one of us, and we live that light out in the world around us. That people see and say, something is going on here. Because the medium is the message. There is a message to be shared, but the medium is also the message. Robert Weber says that when Christians live out and embody the medium as the message, they disclose the Christian way of being and invite the listener to participate in a new way of life in the community of God's presence in the world, the church. But here's the thing God insists that his presence not be kept hidden in a $2 million state of the art case, not in a tent not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, and not even in Jesus, but that it be on full display in us, his church. And I imagine the Corinthians had a hard time with this when they are hearing this language. They maybe wrote back to Paul, or, or maybe when he came to visit, they are challenging him, and they're like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would God do that? Why would God put something so valuable in us? And so in his second letter to the Corinthian church, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, these earthen vessels, these boring, simple things, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That's why God displays his power in us, because people see something different about us, and they're like, it must be God, because there's no way it's that. And that's the beauty of God's spirit dwelling in us. We sang this song earlier, and I'll wrap up with this. When you speak and when you move, when you do what only you can do, it changes us. It changes what we see, and it changes what we seek. And that's my prayer. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray along those lines. I want to pray that on this Pentecost Sunday, 2018, that, that we too may know the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the power that God displays in us change us. And may it inspire change in those around us. God, this is our prayer. We read a story like this, we turn the pages back 2,000 years, and, and we can go, wow, great that that happened to them, but we believe that the promise that was for them was not only for them, but it was for their children and their children's children and for all who are far off, for all for whom the Lord would call. And that includes us in this place today. All of us invited to be part of the revelation of your kingdom in our world today. God, we are grateful for this, and we ask that you would do these things in us, that you would move in our lives that you would change what we see, that you would change what we seek, that you would send us out in these jars of clay to demonstrate your power at work in us, changing us and changing the world around us. Go with us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As we do each week, we have some time for conversation. So I'd invite you to make your way through the lobby and into the gym where I've written some questions based on this morning's theme. If you'd like to join some people for prayer, you're welcome to do that down the hallway. You'll see a sign out there in the lobby directing you. And we will formally wrap up our gathering at 11 o'clock. Thanks.